1: Isn't it great to feel safe? Society programs you to become safe. Education prepares you for a high-paying, secure job. Now that's the epitome of safe. What a great story! Or is it? Hey, hello storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited to announce that our sponsor is Audible. They are offering you, our listeners, a free download of one of your favorite audiobooks. You get to choose from 180,000 titles, and you also get a one-month free trial of Audible's entire service. Simply go to www.audible.com audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. For your convenience, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio, as well as the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Because the theme of the show is Change Your Story, Change Your Life, I've created a free gift for you, my listeners. It is an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life in Business. You can download it immediately at www.changeyourstorypodcast.com. One of the most rewarding things in this podcast for me is my ongoing dialogue with you, my storytellers, my listeners. Let's continue that dialogue. Keep sending your comments about what you're getting from the show and what you'd like to see in it going forward. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S at ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com I promise to read every message I receive, and to choose some of them to share with you on the show. Today's guest discovered early in his career that the safe story was not an empowering one. So he made a decision to live into a risky story. He said goodbye to safe and struck out on his own, and it paid off. Today, he is an intellectual property attorney. And he helps entrepreneurs, startups, and innovators harness the power of their intellectual property rights and reduce exposure to lawsuits or brand challenges in the marketplace. Now, considering that we live in an age where the Internet is becoming our dominant place of work, the service he offers is extremely important. He prides himself on making the complex issues related to intellectual property understandable for non-lawyers. He's published two books about intellectual property law, The Entrepreneur's IP Planning Playbook and Patent Litigation Primer. He's also working on a more ambitious project, a book to provide entrepreneurs with an overview of how to craft an intellectual property strategy <laughs> strategy from start to finish. He likes to be called Bobby. His name is Robert Klink, and he has a law degree cum laude from Harvard Law School. It's my great honor and pleasure to welcome... Robert Klink to the show. Bobby, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you
0: for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yes, my friend, we're going to have some fun. And as I usually do, we're going to start at the beginning.
0: Where were you born? I was born in a town called McAllen, Texas, which most people have never heard of. It is five miles from the Mexican border. All the way at the southern tip of Texas. So it's about 50 miles inland and five miles from the border. Uh, I I say town. When I was born there, it was I think about 50 or 60,000 people. Now it's well over 100,000 in the town itself. And then the surrounding area is even bigger. So, you live
1: in the historic location where we will have this wonderful
0: wall. (laughs) Well, that's where I was born and raised. Um, (laughs) I I spent the first uh, 18 years of my life there. Um, my, My... parents were both from there my mother's family had been there for quite a while there's family lore that that someone in my mother's family uh generations ago was actually a doctor and would get uh brought taken over the border to help Pancho Villa treat his men during the insurrection in mexico
1: wow Um, now
0: have you you looked into that have you you explored it uh, i haven't too much My, my grandmother on My mother's side wrote a, just kind of a, this was before the days of self publishing, but she just wrote a, uh, something that she then published herself. I don't know if she went to a FedEx office, but someplace like that to print it. And it, it, it was titled before I forget. And it, it told a family lore that she knew of. And that was one of the things she told, one of the stories she told and it's one of those things it's a undocumented and not really easy way to find but it's an interesting story nonetheless
1: oh yeah that really is i mean heck i mean you could sit down in an imaginative mood and create a little film script out of that you definitely could (laughs) definitely
0: could now Uh, today today you live in washington dc yeah That's correct. I I, I moved to Washington first in 2003, um, uh, soon after law school. Right after I finished law school, I worked for a judge, a a federal court of appeals judge down in Arkansas, and then I I came to Washington. I did a brief stint back in Texas for three years while I was a federal prosecutor, but other than that, between 2003 and today, I've lived in Washington, uh, D.C., and I consider it my home.
1: You were a federal prosecutor. What kind of cases were you working on?
0: Well, I was technically a white-collar crime prosecutor, so I would handle things like identity theft, uh, a wire fraud, mail fraud, but I had the, the great uh, experience of working in Fort Worth, Texas, is where I was located when I was doing it, and at the time, I had never been a prosecutor before everyone else in the office had. Everyone else had tried a number of cases, and this was relatively early in my career, and they gave me the opportunity to just take over their cases and try them uh, on the eve of trial. So I tried drug cases, gun cases, um, all of these different kinds of cases, some bank robberies. So it was a mix of things that I did, but I spent most of my time working up and working on uh, white collar crimes, uh, things like fraud and um, uh, identity theft was actually quite a big one that we faced quite a bit.
1: You must have accumulated some amazing
0: stories. Uh, I did. I've always told people that my time as a federal prosecutor, even though it will be the shortest period of anything I did as a lawyer, will be the best stories of my life. I had some uh, one case. It was a, a drug case where an individual was caught trying to fly out of the Dallas Fort Worth Airport with something like 10 kilos of cocaine hidden in a couple of different types of containers one was an idaho and mashed potatoes containers and the other was poppycock containers <laughs> you can imagine that made for some fun puns during my closing argument to the jury <laughs> and did were you successful in your prosecution there yes i was uh, the jury didn't take very long the the, the defendant in that case uh, testified and his testimony didn't make any sense. And so the jury, I think, took about 20 minutes to come back with guilty on all counts.
1: I'm just curious, how old
0: was that person? He was, I believe, in his 50s. Uh, It was a series of um, uh, it was a series of cases that uh, there was a group of Nigerians who were uh, coming to the United States, buying drugs in the United States and then exporting them to london and then i think they would go other places in europe and so he was one of those individuals that we caught
1: mm. you know it's this is fascinating uh, of course um in my interviews uh, i love to keep things open and go with the flow and um this is a fun thing to pursue for a little bit if you uh indulge me is that okay yeah that's great you're, you're familiar with the um the French Connection, right? Because it was made into a big movie. Uh, I am. Now, do you know the backstory to that? In other words, what is the, what was the largest, most important place in the world for drug traffic into North America?
0: I, I don't know at the time of the French Connection. I mean, I know now that obviously it's it's all coming up from the southern border, but I'm not sure at the time of the French Connection. Montreal, my friend. Wow, that's that's impressive.
1: It is, and what the thing. I live in Canada, and um, this is just a little aside. Maybe I think my my storytellers, my listeners, will be interested in this too. When The Godfather, you know, became a big feature film, it, it put on the map the so-called well, not the so-called, but the Five Families. And what people don't know to this day is that. There is a sixth family, and it's located in Montreal, also in Toronto, and it's more powerful than the other five. And it was run by Vito Rizzuto, who died not too long ago, and it was his family that was basically orchestrating the importation of heroin into North America and then trafficking it into New York and other places in the States. And that was the wow. French, the French connection. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that's, you know, we could, I could go on about that for the entire hour <laughs> and that would, that would not serve you very well. So <laughs> let me ask you, Bobby, did you come from a big family?
0: No, actually I didn't. I had one older brother, um, and then I had a handful of cousins on each side, but it was actually a relatively small family, but a close family. And who would you say was your biggest influence when you were growing up? That's always a hard question for me to answer because I think there's no question that my family influenced me in subtle ways that I don't realize. My father, for example, owned a chain of retail drugstores, so I got a natural sense of wanting to be my own boss and wanting to run a business, I think, from watching him. Uh, my brother, who's a year and a half older than me, definitely inspired me in many ways. Um, he's actually a struggling musician in Austin, Texas, who lives on probably about $24,000, $25,000 a year, but he inspires me every day because he, he's he been willing to sacrifice so much to go after what he is his clear dream in life, and so few people have that that courage to be willing to give up a comfortable life, give up a safe life to live the life they really want to lead. And so I I definitely learned that from him. But when I when I think about the people who've influenced me in my life, I always tend to default to my teachers, my mentors. And so growing up, there really were two of those teachers who had a huge impact on my life. The first was my debate coach in high school. His name was Lou Sarabondo. He was a New Yorker by birth and had lived there for much of his life before ending up in McAllen, Texas. And he was a huge influence on me both, he was good at what he did, he, he coached, he mentored, he did all of those things. But I consider him a huge impact on my life because debate is what led me to public speaking, which led me to be on a mock trial team, which ultimately is what inspired me to become a lawyer. So I wouldn't be the person I am today if i had not been in debate if i hadn't had that wonderful debate coach who made it such a fun experience to go out and hone my skills at public speaking so he is a huge influence on my life even though i can't point to a single thing necessarily that he taught me but just his overall uh, impact on my life has been uh, very important
1: i love that story um for a couple of reasons i mean He obviously opened doors inside of you so that you were able to discover things that you loved and things that you could excel at, which led you to your career. And it's amazing when you were talking, you just reminded me that I had a a teacher, uh, Robert Girardella, who opened my eyes to the excitement in literature which led me to drama, which led me to a profession of
0: professional acting right and, and it 's funny how our, our our mentors, our teachers, we sometimes don't put uh, we don 't put two and two together we can 't put the puzzle together, but uh, with my debate coach, Mr. Serbano, that has been something i 've always known i 've always been thankful for. Uh, I also happen to I was so happy cuz I gave him in a sense a gift. Uh, he had been toiling at it for many years and I actually made it to the state tournament and won the state tournament in Texas. And so mm-hmm. that was his first and I think his only chance to ever go to the state tournament with one of his um you know with one of his students and so it was Fun to give that uh, gift to him and to see the joy uh, in his eyes when I won was was quite exciting. So I was always happy about that. It's funny that you mentioned a literature teacher because that was the other person I was going to mention was my uh, my English or my junior year English teacher. And she inspired me in other ways. Uh, She taught advanced placement English. So it was the hardest, the most advanced uh, uh, level where it prepared you to take uh, a test to test out of college English. And she viewed it as if you were going to be testing out of college English, she was going to hold you to the standard of someone in a college English class. And so she had a reputation for giving a, a students C's because mm. she actually expected the best of you. And that sparked, in a sense, uh, for me, a lifelong love of having mentors, having people I worked with who were actually hard on me, who gave me constructive criticism. And that is something that I think has made me better at everything I do. I became a better writer because of her, but then also because later on in my life and in my career as a lawyer, I sought out people who uh, weren't just yes men, but people who would give me criticism, tell me how to be better at what I did. And uh, I, I actually got to the point that I enjoyed getting back a piece of paper that was marked up with ink and had red all over it, whereas many people, I think, cringe at that thought. So that, that was Mrs., Ms. Callahan, who was that teacher, and she had uh, a profound impact on my life as well.
1: I love it. And what you're describing to me is one of the strong characteristics of a successful entrepreneur who looks for accountability partners. And that's what, yeah, that's what you had.
0: You had accountability. That's right. I think that's absolutely right. And it's funny how, you know, I, I don't, didn't think of it in those terms, but that's absolutely right. That's what she was. She actually held you to a standard and mm. held you account- accountable.
1: Hmm. I love that. That's that's great. Now, when you were a child, before you had these doors opened to you, what did you dream of becoming? If anything, did you have a childhood dream of being something uh, like, you know, I want to be a cowboy or whatever? <laughs>
0: You know, I I don't remember any of those types of dreams. I don't ever remember thinking I wanted to be an astronaut or a fireman or or a police officer, any of the classic things that um, children think about. Uh, I suspect I probably, especially at an early age, wanted to be like dad. So I probably thought about being a business owner, although I never seriously thought about being a pharmacist, which was his professional training. Um, but I, I honestly can't remember much before I started to have a desire and a dream to become a lawyer, which was in my junior year of high school. So that's really the first first thing that I can remember really having a solid belief of what I wanted to do.
1: Now, did you develop that? Uh, I want to get the time uh, frame correct here. Did you develop that desire to become
0: a lawyer after being uh, in the debate class. That's right. So I I started debate as a sophomore in high school and loved it. And then as a junior in high school, and I can't even remember how this came about, but I joined a mock trial team, which is for people who don't know, mock trial is basically you, you put a team together and you are given a fact pattern and witness statements. And you actually then go and, uh, put on a trial and you, compete against people on the other side. So that I started doing my junior year and both junior and senior year, we made it to the state semifinals in Texas. And again, I found an immediate joy in doing that. It was the public speaking, but it was the, the, the task of trying to craft facts to to the best possible way for the story that you were trying to tell that I also enjoyed. So that was the experience that um, really started to build the desire to become a lawyer in me. And then that was even further developed my senior year at my high school. There was a long tradition of competing in, in a contest. It was called the We the People competition. We colloquially colloquially called it the constitution team, because it was uh, a class and then a competition where you had to learn various aspects about the constitution. And then you would go and we would, I think we had five or six teams within our team who had particular focus and would go and, and do mock congressional testimony about various issues about the constitution. And so in that role. I learned quite a bit about the Constitution, more than almost any high school student does, and so that further developed my desire to to be a lawyer and to work with these issues.
1: Mm. And how did you eventually choose intellectual property law?
0: Well, it's kind of funny. I didn't choose it. It chose me, and okay. that, that, that's a, a common theme, I think, among lawyers. Uh, there are some lawyers who clearly have a vision for what they want to do and, and end up in it through uh, looking at it and, and, and directing themselves to it. In my case, it came about after I was a prosecutor, I joined a small firm. Uh, with, At the time, I was the third lawyer to join the firm. And when I joined, the firm had a couple of very active antitrust lawsuits going And both of the other lawyers, that was their background. They were antitrust lawyers by training. I wasn't, that was not something I'd done, but I expected to learn it. About two weeks after I joined the firm though, a patent infringement suit that they had filed, it was their first ever foray into any intellectual property issue, came to life. And given everyone's experience and lack of experience, we just decided that it would make sense for me to take the lead role on that case. And that set me down the road of uh, finding my joy and my love for intellectual property law. It it started with patent issues, and that's what I first did. And it it was an interesting case because it effectively was me against a team of 10 or 12 lawyers from one of the biggest law firms in the country. And I spent about eight years, or sorry, not eight years, eight months of my life on that case uh, at a time before I had a, a child. And I worked very long hours, but I loved it because it was this uh, just intriguing area of law that had lots of different, uh, different challenges and different um, uh, pressure points that was unlike anything I had ever done. And so that's what started me on it. And over time since then, I have kind of whittled away at everything else and increased my presence with intellectual property law and expanded it out into not just litigation, but also helping with planning, helping with developing strategies and also with helping Uh, companies and people handle issues other than patent issues, but including trademarks and copyrights and trade secrets and putting together an overall strategy for their business.
1: What about uh, stuff like um, online, like with websites and, you know, people stealing other people's ideas online and stuff like that?
0: Well, and that falls within the subject matter. And, And so when you're online, by nature, you have to be careful because you are obviously exposing your business to... Uh, and I say exposing, I mean, you're making your business public and you're taking it out and putting it out for the world to know. So it's especially important for businesses that do a good bit of their work online to have a strategy in place to protect their intellectual property. Uh, You can do that obviously with strong trademark protections. If you have a great name for uh, a program, for example, there's copyright protection, which would protect you if someone literally went out and stole um, an online course, for example, that you developed and tried to offer it as their own. Again, you always have to make det- determinations and decisions when that happens about whether it's worth taking action. But the the important part is if you have a plan in place, hopefully you can minimize it, but also you'll be in the best position to enforce your rights if something does come up.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I know it's a fascinating arena, and it is going to become uh, huge in the next five or ten years where most of our personal and professional lives will be conducted online.
0: You that's agree? right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. It's yeah. And it's funny. My uh, I have these uh, discussions with my father who, uh, it, it drives him nuts. He hates to give out any kind of information. He's the type of person who... Uh, if a company or business wants his social security number, he says, I'm not doing business with you, obviously, except for the exceptions where there's some case where you just have to, but you know, and it, it, it's such a different world today, even versus five years ago, where nowadays we've just come to expect that we will have all of our information and all of our data stored online. And we will have so much information about ourselves that's uh, out in the world and available for people to find. And that obviously is only going to increase and accelerate over the next 5 10 15 years. Mm-hmm. So people people need to accept it and and come up with what they're comfortable with within that um that reality. You know it's funny because I uh, I'm thinking now about myself. I'm I
1: I I guess I'm in a way optimistically naive because I don't worry about that at all. Like I never have. I, I quickly took to buying stuff online and, and now knock wood, nothing's happened, you know, <laughs> but uh, I, I just don't worry about it. Now for you, what challenges did you face when you first started practicing law?
0: Well, so I faced different challenges at different points in my career. When I very first started practicing, my challenges. I think largely came down to a bit of my entrepreneurial spirit being there that I'd inherited from my father and not being tapped. So I, when I first started practicing, I worked at bigger firms representing huge clients on huge matters. So as you can imagine, I was essentially a cog in the machine. I didn't see necessarily that I was playing an important part. I didn't have responsibility. I was just given a task and completing and told to complete it. And that for someone with an entrepreneurial spirit is very disheartening. And so I experienced that for a few years. And that was part of what led me to to take a break from that practice and go become a prosecutor. Um, that was the early challenge. Later on, the challenges were different. Um, when I join, when I was leaving the prosecutor's office, I had to, at that point in my life, make a a hard decision. I had the option to go back to the firm that I'd been at before, which would have been safe and easy and and guaranteed salary. Or I could join this small little law firm with two other lawyers who didn't have any regular revenue and there was no promises of anything. And I, I recognized at the time that making that decision at that point would probably forever foreclosed me from going back to a big firm. And so I had to make that decision and I made the decision to go with the smaller firm rather than going back to the big firm. And so that was, that was a challenge. And we, we had tough times. I think my first year at that firm, I spent, I think only six months of the year at the firm. And I think my total pay at the firm that year was, um, 40 or $50,000. Whereas if I'd gone back to the big firm, I would have made i think in that 6 months something like $150,000 so you can see there was a, a trade off and that was it was hard at the time but i don't regret it at all
1: now was this at the time that you were being influenced by the fact that you uh, now had a child and you were
0: considering the, the you know you had a bigger picture to deal with no, actually it wasn't. Um, that, that's the biggest challenge or the biggest, um, I don't know if challenge is the right word, but the, the biggest heartbreak I faced uh, in my career was actually as I left that firm that I joined after being a prosecutor. And I, I made, when I joined that firm, I made one of the classic mistakes that I now counsel entrepreneurs not to make. Mm. And that's, that's this. I joined that firm and I was titled a partner But I wasn't a partner. I wasn't in the partnership agreement. I was working. uh, I had a letter, I guess, from them that said I was entitled to a salary of something, but I recognized that the firm didn't have regular income and that I would only be paid when the firm had income. So essentially, I joined the firm taking all the risk of being a partner because if the firm didn't make money, I wasn't guaranteed anything. And I didn't even have any guarantee of the upside because I didn't have any ownership interest in the company. And and I stayed there for about four years and the entire time, I, I can't complain. We, we generally split things pretty evenly with the other two lawyers, taking a little bit more than me, but not much. And it was completely fair and I had no complaints, but then I found out my wife was pregnant and I decided I needed to formalize the agreement and formalize in a sense that if I was taking the downside risk I needed to have guarantee on the upside risk and so I raised the issue with them and through a series of discussions for you know we kind of discussed it briefly but I I brought it up I think first about mid-year and understood it would make sense to do it at the end of the year then it came up again at the end of the year and we talked briefly but didn't really come to a resolution. And then one of the other partners didn't live here in town and he was in town in late February. And I, I I drove to work at the time and I offered to take him to the airport. So as we were walking from our office to my car, he brought the issue up. And he basically said that he and the other partner had talked and he made a proposal. Sitting here today, I don't even remember what that proposal was. I just remember that my floor or my my jaw hit the ground of feeling that it was, I don't want to say fundamentally unfair, but just was not what I was expecting. It was considerably less, um, a much smaller percentage than I thought we had been talking about. And, you know, we we talked on the way to the airport. He could obviously tell I wasn't happy, um, but I dropped him off. I actually called my wife as soon as I dropped him off and she could sense um, she could sense the hurt the pain and the anger in my voice and she said I think I need you to come home right now You, you you can't go back to the office but basically telling me giving me an excuse not to go back to work that day and so I did I came home and this was a Friday and it was also my I I think the next day was my brother-in-law's birthday, um, or we were going to celebrate my brother-in-law's birthday the next day. Um, But so I came home, and I I stewed, and I stewed on it for that night, and then I just realized me stewing on it wasn't good. So I sent an email to these other two lawyers and said, hey, can can we get on the phone to talk about this? And so we agreed to have a call that Sunday. And in that call that Sunday, it became crystal clear to me that I would not be working there anymore. Just a decision I made. Again, it was, I don't know who was right or wrong, but our expectations were just fundamentally different. And the problem was, because at that point we had different expectations, we were trying to justify our different expectations, which is, as you can imagine, would lead to people talking about how they're more valuable and other people are less valuable. Mm. And so it led, it led to some unbelievably hurt feelings. Um, and one of the other attorneys, the one who was here in town, it completely fractured our relationship. Um, and at the end of that call, my wife, my brother-in-law and I, with my two month old baby went to my office, packed up all my personal belongings and left my keys because I knew I wouldn't be working there anymore. Uh, I didn't tell him that on the phone, but I knew that. And um, that was the most painful business experience of my life. And it was all because we didn't set out our expectations, our understandings in writing at the outset. Mm. And because we didn't do that, we were left to try to have this negotiation four years later, which is just not a good time to be having that discussion.
1: So here you were now, you have, uh, you're married, you have a, a very young child and no job. And you're looking at the unknown. What was the next
0: step? Well, the next step was to try to decide what I was going to do with my life. And, and actually, I, I had Already somewhat started that process, I guess, on Friday, that Friday when I'd gotten home before the the call on Sunday, I had actually – that was when I filed – I think that's when I filed paperwork for Clink LLC as a company uh, with the D.C. department of of, uh, the D.C. government. It's also when I registered the domain name. I just said, let me just get – let me get this protected just in case. I also called a legal recruiter or two and had them start looking to see if they could come up with any options for me. So that's where I was Um, and over the next month or so, and luckily I had had a, a nest egg that I could rely upon so I was not at a point where I was desperate for money. But over the next month or so I decided that I was going to strike out on my own and start my own firm. And that was a hugely risky proposition. And I, I faced a choice, interestingly enough, between going that route or going back to the firm I'd been at before I was a prosecutor. They actually offered to have me back as what was called of counsel Uh, Which would have given me a guaranteed salary of, of I think it was a quarter of a million dollars a year. But it wouldn't have given me any option to really build my practice or build my career. Because I would be in a position where they would be expecting me to, to bill something like 2,000 or 2,200 or 2,400 hours a year. And you just can't really do much business development on your own if you do that. And also it was not going to be intellectual property law. I was going to be going back to something completely different. And so I had the choice of either taking a very safe job where I could have gone and, and had financial security and known that I could pay my mortgage every month um, and, and put food on the table, or I could go out on my own which was much riskier, but provided me with the opportunity to actually build my own practice and build my own career and take responsibility for myself. And I chose the latter. And there were some hairy times early on, but uh, sitting here today, I would never have made a different decision.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I hope people are listening carefully because people are faced with this kind of um, dilemma constantly. And very often, out of fear, they jump for the safe choice. So could you give us a, a kind of Reader's Digest summary of the steps that took you from ground floor, not knowing what you were going to build, or to different landmarks that you reached as you became more successful?
0: Yeah, I, I'm happy to. So I luckily I had a, a, a client... Come in pretty early. It was a friend of a friend who had a. It was not an intellectual property dispute. He had a dispute. He was a um, minority shareholder of a, a startup company that he had been working at and uh, was terminated, and then the company took some actions to. Uh, effectively take some actions that gave my client the right to demand that they buy his shares and so it was a, a, a fight over the value of those shares so I had that case come in um, at, at which was good because it gave me work it gave me something pretty quickly I reached out to people I knew within a month or two I got um, uh, a, a relationship to help a firm down in Texas on a case that had to do with intellectual property law. It was someone who I had made contact with many years earlier when I toyed with the idea of moving back to Texas as a lawyer, but decided not to. Um, And it just so happened that as I was transitioning into my own firm, And a couple of months later, his firm was starting to work on a a malpractice case that involved a patent dispute, and they were not lawyers that had ever handled a patent matter. So they needed someone with that expertise. So they brought me in um, and gave me uh, kind of a guaranteed monthly payment uh, to work with them on that case. And so within a matter of about three or four months... I had gotten to the point where I was already bringing in about half of what I would have brought in, uh, in my salary at at the safe firm. Of course I had overhead. I had an office, as you can imagine, I had a two month old baby. I was needed a space to actually do my work. So I went out and rented an office. I had to buy insurance. I had all these other costs mounting, but it gave me some confidence that I was already on the right track in that early phase. I made, I think, another one of the mistakes that many entrepreneurs make. I, I tried to be everything for everybody. I, I didn't try – No, I didn't admit that I was an intellectual property lawyer, I guess, is the way to put it. Uh, I tried to market myself as uh, doing – Intellectual property law, but also handling commercial disputes and doing appellate work and doing writing and and doing all of these different things. I guess the idea being simply to try and cast my net as widely as possible to try to, uh, you know, not miss a potential opportunity so I did that for a while and then I started working with a business coach and working with that business coach. And she was actually, she works uh, with lawyers. She's a former lawyer who helps uh, lawyers develop their, um, their, their practice development, I guess. And I worked with her and one of the first things she said is she said, well, what kind of lawyer are you? <laughs> and so in that work I discovered, you know, the, the, critical understanding that I think most entrepreneurs now understand is you need to be a specialist. You need to be known for something. And although it's scary to make that decision because you, you, you think you might be turning down other work at the end of the day, that's the only way to go. So I, I bit the bullet and started saying, I am an intellectual property lawyer, period. And she was also though, the, the person who really helped me to hone who I wanted to represent she, she wanted me to come up with the idea of an industry. And she was thinking something like the software industry or the uh, Internet of Things industry or that type of industry is what she had in mind to really focus my marketing and efforts on. And as I was thinking about that, uh, I came to the conclusion that the industry I wanted to work with was entrepreneurs. And I wanted to do that because... Entrepreneurs are the most exciting people in the world often. They're also the people who are doing just wonderfully entertaining things. And I'm an entrepreneur myself. And so working with her is what led me really to focus on intellectual property law, but also to focus my efforts on working with entrepreneurs, startups, and innovators, and just focusing on those folks as the people that I really want to represent. That was a an important milestone in my business, as you can imagine. Before that, I couldn't really craft much of a marketing message because I didn't know who I was talking to. But once I had that focus, it became easy to to really craft a marketing message because I knew who I was talking to, what their needs were, and how to craft a message to really uh, help them understand how I could help them. And so that is probably the, the biggest pivot point in my career since I've had my own law firm, especially, uh, that that I think is a key to my success today.
1: I love it. And, you know, for anyone listening, um, many of the storytellers who tune into this show are entrepreneurs. And um, the amazing thing here is that the lesson transcends anything about law. It's a lesson about becoming clear about who you are, who you're going to serve, and having the courage to niche down instead of trying to be, as Bobby said, to be uh, every man to everybody,
0: correct? That's right. And and it's it's so funny because I was so scared to do it, but as soon as I did it, Uh, It it paid off in spades, and I was able to to see so much clearer what I wanted, and and, I think most entrepreneurs will have heard um, with the concept of start with with your why, and I think that was my moment of understanding what my why was, and that was um, – I think you're right. That does transcend law. That transcends just about everything. If you are trying to offer a service or a product to people, you need to know who the people are and why you're doing it.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, in the podcast game, uh, are
0: you familiar with uh, John Lee Dumas? Uh, I am. Uh, He was one of my early forays into uh, the entrepreneurial world was listening to his podcast.
1: Yeah, he's great. And, uh, you know, I think you know that with him, he has defined his audience. He actually has an avatar. Uh, right. He's given that that one individual a name. He knows how that avatar dresses, uh, what that person likes to eat, what, you know, their books they like to read. He's speaking that specifically uh, when he's talking to his audience. And, and that has allowed him to become a multimillionaire through uh, his
0: entrepreneurial efforts. It's, it's quite wonderful. Yeah, I love it. It's- it's amazing because if you think about it, he has that very specific. And I think he's a good lesson to people because that he is that specific in his message and understanding and his targeting. But at the same time, he's not limited to that because I'm not his ideal avatar. No, I am an avid listener. I subscribe. I I purchased his freedom journal. So I am, you know, someone who's converted because I'm related to that avatar, but I'm not the actual avatar. So Mm. it, it, it's a lesson that you don't necessarily lose what you think you're giving up when you actually kind of burrow down and, and make yourself a specialist with one particular area.
1: Yeah. I love the I love what you just said. You you said it beautifully because it's true that again, the biggest obstacle is always fear. If mm-hmm. you don't st- face it and step into it and through it, you're going to be stuck. But once you go through it, it the things you learn are counterintuitive. Let me see now. I was narrowing my market, but as a result, I became so successful that it began to create a a ripple effect, and I attracted other people who were not originally part of that market. Yep. yep. That's, that's fabulous. So let's jump to, you've written two books. What
0: motivated you to write them, and tell us a bit about them. Well, so, so the first book that I wrote was Patent Litigation Primer, and it, it started as something less ambitious than it ended up being. At first, I intended to write a mini book, which is just a small – it's a little format you can do, and it would almost be like a pamphlet that I could provide to clients or prospective clients. It was going to be a marketing um, message as something I could use in my marketing and as I wrote, I just continued to write, and I continued to write, and then I ended up with a 200-page book <laughs> um, that, again, the goal was to provide information about how a, a, a lawsuit about patent infringement goes in a way that could be understandable for non-lawyers, for, for business owners, for inventors, because I often found in my practice that people had misconceptions where they had just enough information to be dangerous to themselves so my goal was to write a book that could provide information for those people so that they could understand the process and try to get rid of the the complexity and let me tell you patent litigation is a very complex world and the book is not light reading it's not something you're going to pick up and um you know, breeze through because just the nature of the issue, you have to think some, but that was the goal of that book. Um, then the second book is a much shorter piece. It's the entrepreneur's IP planning playbook. And this was my attempt to provide a very short, concise book that entrepreneurs could use to understand what they need to be thinking about how they need to be developing a strategy and just to think about the issues kind of to flag issues they need to think about and it's about 75 pages in the printed uh, form it it basically walks an entrepreneur through the process of creating what i call an ip plan or it's a strategy for your intellectual property and there're kind of a, a handful of parts to it uh, part of it is identifying who within your business if you're more than a solopreneur is going to be involved in the process then it's developing strategies to make sure you're actually protecting your property and then there's a section about uh, developing strategies to minimize the risk that you're actually stepping on rights held by anyone else and, and might get sued as a result so that's the purpose of the book it's uh, intended for entrepreneurs for startups for folks of that ilk to understand what they don't know and what they need to be thinking about with respect to intellectual property. And are these books available on Amazon? They are. Uh, They're both available on Amazon, but also uh, I offer them for free on my website for anyone who, as you can imagine, will give me their email address. They can download one or both books for free uh, at my website, which is just clink, and that's K-L-I-N-C-K-L-L-C.com.
1: Wow, that's a great, great offer, guys. Um, Any of you who are uh, even just dabbling with business online need to take a look at that. And what a generous offer you've just been given. Um, Free. Everybody loves free. (laughs) (laughs) I love free, so I assume everyone else does, too. Yeah, I do, too. (laughs) Now what are the biggest traps for entrepreneurs to avoid when they enter this online business world?
0: Well, and, and some of the biggest traps for online business are the same as any other business. I think as some of the stories I've told give some insight into some of the traps. So one thing I would say is, is you need to have it in writing. And that that's a piece of advice I give to people that that's partly about intellectual property, but it's, it's broader than that. It's, if you are working with someone else, whether they're an employee or partner or anything else, you should have a written agreement with them. doesn't have to be overly complex. doesn't have to look like something a lawyer wrote necessarily, but you need to have an agreement that says uh, who owns what, who's entitled to what, and what the responsibilities of each person uh, is or are. Mm-hmm. So that's one, Um, you know, another mistake in the intellectual property sphere that I see quite often is, again, it's within the habit and writing sphere. Too many people have employees or independent contractors that they don't have written agreements with, which can really wreak havoc in your intellectual property. And let me give you an example of that. I had a client at one point who had purchased a patent from a company and It turned out that the company did not have a written assignment, which is basically a written transfer of rights from the inventors who were the employees of the company. And they had left that earlier company, I don't know, let's say 10 years earlier. So we were in this situation where we had to try to track down these five inventors who were listed on this patent, find them, and convince them 10 years after the fact to, to sign a written document giving up their rights in the patent. And so you can imagine that's a hard task. So mm-hmm. having an agreement with your employees where they're giving their rights to uh, in, any intellectual property they create for you is, is important. But also having confidentiality agreements with employees so that they can't use any confidential information they learn from your business in the course of you know working for someone else either if it's an independent contractor while they're working for you or uh, after they stop working for you. So those are some of the common legal mistakes you see. Um, In the online world, you've obviously seen some social media mistakes. Uh, Yesterday even I think we saw one from McDonald's where the McDonald's Twitter account, uh, someone with access to it, uh, posted a a a tweet that was, and I don't even remember exactly the substance, but was very critical of President Trump. And McDonald's obviously had to take that down relatively quickly. But so that's a, a mistake that people make is, you need to know who has access to your online um, profiles, online uh, properties, and you need to be very careful about who has access and control their activities because they are speaking on your behalf as a company. And if they say that, it can lead to a serious, if they do something wrong, it can lead to a serious problem for your company. So in the online world, that's one of the biggest issues is simply knowing who has access and making sure they're treating it appropriately.
1: Hmm. Would you recommend perhaps that, um, people, uh, create some kind of document of compliance for their, uh. Uh, the people who work with them, uh, so they know up front, like, these are the things you can, these are the things you shouldn't be doing online?
0: Well, I think, and again, every company has to make their own decision. And uh, I think some companies have limits about what their employees are even allowed to say in their personal capacity. That is a decision that, you know, a company needs to make individually. Uh, And and in most contexts, it's not going to make sense to put limits on that other than for Uh, relatively senior um, people who are seen as the face of your company. But that being said, you should definitely have a a, a policy about your social media plan. I mean, what types of information are you going to post? What types will you not post? Uh, What will you do? Uh, How will we make sure and guarantee that we have the proper licenses for any images that we post to make sure we're not violating copyright laws? So those types of policies need to be written down. You need to have a plan for it. And then anybody who has access to your online property. So again, if you have a social media manager or if it's some other employee, you need to make sure that they're familiar with your policies and have agreed to abide by them. Again, I would say put it in writing, make sure that they've put in writing that they agree to abide by it, just so that you have that um, agreement in writing. And again, so that, for example, they don't inadvertently disclose some trade secrets, some, you know, very important commercial confidential information that you have as a business. So you need to simply get it in writing and have a plan put together and make sure everyone's on the same page.
1: Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Excellent advice. Now, what gets you personally fired
0: up and excited Getting up every day and getting to work with entrepreneurs, honestly, is the answer. Mm. Uh, I feed off of the energy uh, that the the folks I work with have, and I recognize that I'm playing a small part in what they are creating, and so it it allows me to get, I guess, a contact high from working with um, these Mm. entrepreneurs and really uh, enjoy the fruits of their labor and see how... Uh, my working with them has played a part in their success and and has helped them to achieve great things. I love
1: it. And I I hear it. I hear it in your voice. Um, You can't fake that kind of energy. That's wonderful. Now, is there anything that gets you particularly angry? And I'm not talking about, you know, pet peeves, uh, you know, uh, personal stuff, but in the world, and there's a lot of injustice. Is there any particular thing that just gets you, you know, your blood levels up?
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's – there, there's a lot of particular injustices I could point to, but I think one of the things that bothers me the most is um, – and everybody does it, but it's, it's intellectual dishonesty. It's if we don't like the result, we'll just make up facts – that make it easier to argue against the result rather than trying to have a nuanced discussion. I can have a nuanced discussion with people that I disagree with politically and, and have a great time so long as everyone is willing to admit you know, various facts, including the ones that hurt my position and hurt their position, but argue around them. Um, I get very annoyed with, with people who simply rather than making a nuanced argument about why even in spite of this fact, you should agree with me about X, Y, and Z, they simply pretend that that fact doesn't exist in the world. And that's one of the things that gets me. And I I think in. You know over the last i don't know um probably decade i've seen that uh, become more and more prominent as as people are starting to disagree about basic facts of the world which uh, I, it drives me nuts because mm-hmm. I, I feel like there are certain basic facts that we should all be able to agree to and and i'm seeing it less and less being the case
1: mm-hmm. i like that and again you know i think what you just said jumps out of the realm of um, let's say the, the social political or business realm but it, that, that even applies in our personal lives
0: right, right.
1: right. when you when you're talking to people yeah that's great that's wonderful do you have any favorite books books that have inspired you and you like to reread or
0: recommend to people? Well, so so there are two that I think of, and they're both business books. One of, or, and I say that they're not really business books. One of them is Living Forward uh, by Michael Hyatt and Daniel Harkavy, which is about um, uh, life planning and creating a plan for your life. And I, I was actually turned on to this, um, I, the book, I think, from John Lee Dumas' um, podcast, the first place I heard it, but then I then heard them being interviewed various other places. But the concept is that we, we should understand and have a plan for where we want our life to go, not just our business, not just uh, certain aspects, but we should really think broadly and take the time to actually create a... a A plan. And I think an important part of that is that it will help you understand for most of us, at least most of us with families, our most important goal in life is not about business. It's not about business success. Business success should be something that is serving the other goals of our lives. And, you know, that will often be our family, um, our our spirituality and other things of that nature, and so going through the process of creating an, a life plan is um, incredibly helpful in helping you focus on what you view as the most important parts of your life. So that that was one book that was truly inspirational for me. Uh, another one, I guess, is a a business book. I guess it's Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. Which I love that what, to procrastinate on purpose. Yeah, it's just called Procrastinate on Purpose and. Okay. He, he calls it, he gives you the five permissions to, you know, procrastinate the right way. And, you know, the essential point of it is that there are some things that you should simply decide, I'm just not going to do them because they don't need to be done. So that's one of the permissions. Another is to spend time and money to automate things that should be automated. Uh, a third permission is to accept the imperfect and to delegate. And I it took me a while to learn this for for a long time. I tried to write every blog post myself from scratch and, and that just took too much time. So I delegated the task of a first draft after I gave direction and then I edit. And that in and of itself has been something that saves me unbelievable amounts of time and allows me to actually do more marketing than I would otherwise be doing. Um, then there is uh, the, the, the fourth permission is the permission to accept that it's incomplete and just to procrastinate when it doesn't need to be done right now. And then the final permission is to concentrate. And that means to ignore all else when you are focused on one thing. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's an important permission. So, for example, while I'm talking to you, I I don't have have my my phone on airplane mode. I don't have anything else open. I'm focused 100% on talking with you because this is my most important task right now.
1: I love it. And the author is Rory...
0: Vaden, V-A-D-E-N.
1: Oh, I love it. I love that. And uh, storytellers, don't forget that you can get uh, probably one of these books, if it's, whatever your choice is, on Audible as a, an audio download for free by just going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. How about a
0: favorite quote of yours? that's an easy one don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good oh now who did you hear that from you know i don't know who i first heard it from i've heard it many times and and i've heard the message many times um but too often and and i find myself even even running afoul of it um i I recently uh, completely reworked my website and i waited way too long because i was trying to perfect certain things even though what i had was ready to go was much better than the existing website i waited and waited because i was trying to make it perfect and so I, I try to live by that although i have to admit i'm not always good at it um but you know it's the same concept that that a perfect plan that's never executed is is not very valuable i'd much rather have a good plan that's executed
1: mm-hmm. and so that
0: that's the idea behind it is don't wait till it's perfect. Launch it and get it going. There, there's obviously similar concepts in, in startups where the concept of the, um, the minimal, minimally viable product where you launch and then iterate in the lean startup model where you launch and improve rather than trying to wait until it's perfect to launch. So
1: I particularly love it because the first time I heard it was from a, a brilliant internet marketer named Alex Mendozian. Hmm. Alex said that once, and I wow, I just love it. And then I heard uh, another take on it from Mario Brown, another successful internet marketer who says, take imperfect action. That's yep. his rule, take imperfect action.
0: Um, what do you do for fun, Bobby? Uh, I brew beer. That's what I actually uh, have done for uh, going on about five years now. I brew beer in my backyard and uh, enjoy it with friends and family. And in addition to that, I, I spend time with my daughter and my wife and my two dogs. You brew beer in your backyard? I do. Um, it's something that... Uh, it's a funny story about how life just brings you to funny places. I um, About five years ago, I was on my Facebook page, which is the one social media uh, avenue that I've kept as personal. I don't really use it for my professional life. And I was just scrolling through my feed and saw a high school friend who had taken pictures of some beer he had just bottled. He had um, just uh, restarted himself. And I said to my brother-in-law, I think i sent the picture to him and I said, why aren't we doing this? And that led us to start brewing beer. Um, And it's led to the idea that I'm I'm hoping that one day maybe I'll be able to launch a a brewing business on the side because I love it. I I enjoy the the creative aspects of it. Uh, It's much more creative, a creative outlet for me. That's very different from my day job where I'm able to uh, really craft uh, the recipes and craft the beer to taste exactly how I want it to taste.
1: That's fantastic. I hope you succeed with that, but that you don't pay the price of ending up looking like Orson Welles.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, where do you see yourself in five years? You know, in five years, I would like to be uh, doing much of what I'm doing now, which is running a successful law firm where I I work with entrepreneurs and and startups and folks on uh, a variety of intellectual property issues. The one other piece, though, is – and this won't take five years, but I am going to start developing online courses because I recognize that even though I try to be reasonable in my fees, there are just some businesses for whom the idea of hiring me or another intellectual property lawyer is just too much. It's too expensive. Uh, but they still need to understand the issues and to really be able to uh, handle these on a kind of a do-it-themselves basis. So I intend to create various online courses that I can offer to entrepreneurs to help them with the various legal issues um, that, they will, that they face, especially intellectual property issues but other related issues. And so it will be a kind of a combination of courses and then template documents that they get with taking the courses to help them do it themselves. That's great. That's
1: wonderful. And it's so clear. You're very clear about that. So I'm sure you'll get it done. How
0: can people contact you? Well, so there's a couple of ways. Um, my website, and I have a, a special offer in addition to my books. Um, I have an offer for people who can take a um, a, a four-part online free course. It's an email course where where they'll get videos of me walking them through the process of developing an intellectual property plan for their business. They'll also get some freebies, including one of the books and some other forms that are useful in the process. And that they can get at www.clinkllc.com forward slash podcast. And again, Clink is spelled K L I N C K. So it's www forward slash podcast. And um, social media wise, I'm most active on on Twitter. And people can follow me at, at Bobby Clink. I tweet information sometimes legal related, sometimes just uh, tips and information about startups and entrepreneurship and various other issues that are relevant to folks who um, are interested in those issues.
1: Fantastic.
0: Any final thoughts, Bobby, you want to lead people with? Well, my final thought is, is that if you spend a little bit of time planning up front, you can avoid months or years of pain down the line. And so it's hard to put the time in to create a plan at the outset because we're all, all busy but it is well worth your time. Um, and this applies to intellectual property, but it applies to everything in your life. Um, as you get for me having a life plan and all these things, I believe in in creating plans because it, it really helps you focus on what you want and avoid pain and frustration later, later. So invest the time to create a plan now.
1: Mm-hmm. I can't thank you enough, my friend. You've offered tremendous value. You're a lucid, articulate, passionate guest on this show, and you're a wonderful storyteller. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure to be here.
1: You've given us a gift, Bobby. Storytellers, thank you once again for spending time with us today by tuning in live. And I'm sure that you realize that Bobby Robert Clink gave you, in a little over one hour, an entire course on entrepreneurial success. What golden nuggets. Remember that this richness is not only for you. Definitely, definitely pay it forward. Share this with people. Let them know about this podcast. Tell them that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website... ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com. And in addition to hearing it there, they will also get a free gift a book, a transformational short ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business, guaranteed to change the way you communicate to get people in your personal life and in your business life to pay more attention to you and give you the things that you want. You heard about some wonderful, inspiring, and success-building books today in this podcast. Remember that you can download an audiobook of your choice from more than 180,000 titles for free at www.audibletrial.com forward slash storypower. Remember to continue your dialogue with us and let me know what you're getting from this show, what you like most, what you'd like to see going forward, and I will listen to all of your comments, well, not listen to them, but I'll read them, and I will choose some to share with others on the show. Today's show was all about making the choice between playing it safe or striking out in the direction of your dreams to create a more exciting and fulfilling life. During the next week, think about where you might be playing safe, where you don't want to play safe anymore, and know that you can make that change. Begin by asking, how can I change my story